Welcome again. So excited to see you back from this uh, past week. We're going to explain again uh, what's taking place behind me. We're in this series called The Week That Changed Everything. And so far, we have looked at what's called uh, the last, well, we looked at the last week of Jesus through the eyes of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who give us uh, uh, some specific you know, vantage points and uh, some understanding of that last week, because more is written about that last week than anything else in the life of Jesus, when you look at all four of those books combined. And so as we looked at this, you know, we, so far we've looked at the first day, which was the day they call the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday, and we kind of left by asking this question, do we want to follow who Jesus is or just the Jesus we want him to be? Because that's what they really struggled with back then, and I think we can struggle with that today. Then uh, last week, uh, we started by looking at this. Now, you might remember this is what's called the triclinium meal, and although we love da Vinci's rendering you know, of the Lord's Supper, it's wrong. And so uh, this is actually how it looked, you know, uh, um, and you can look it up yourself. And we saw that Jesus is in the host seat. We saw that John is to his right and kind of you know, a good friend seat to the left. The guest of honor of all people is Judas, and then Peter is over in the servant's seat. And you might remember they're having an argument about who the greatest is. Jesus gets up from the table. He grabs you know, the basin of water because it didn't happen. He begins to wash his disciples' feet. So illustrating and trying to help his disciples understand the kingdom of God, it's okay to be about the greatest, but the greatest is not what you think it is. This is what it means to be greatest, to be a servant, to love God, to serve other people as part of his kingdom. And so Peter was actually in the greatest seat, and he didn't even know it at the time. Uh, and so again, what I'm sharing with you, you know, is what I learned from my trip to Israel with a guy by the name of Brad Gray uh, in his ministry, Walking the Text, that you can look up online as well. He is a great scholar. He's an incredible teacher, most importantly, a credible Christ follower. So you're getting a teaching slash preaching kind of a series at this time. And uh, some of you have already said, hey, Dan, I love this history. I love the way we're teaching. Why can't we do this every single week? And I'm like, this is awesome. And we do. It's just not during the weekend. Did you know that Monday through Friday, we do a devotional, and it's 15 minutes, and it's verse by verse, and it's chapter by chapter, and we give you some Jewish context and perspective? No, we do not put a triclinium meal on every single morning. But it's meant to be an opportunity to kind of understand some context as we go through God's word together. So I just want to remind you of that as we want to make sure that we are getting this learning and this teaching if this is something that's really hitting your heart and mind. Now, what was interesting or humorous to me is uh, last week we went through this whole thing, but what did we forget to talk about or what did we fail to talk about? The meal. We actually didn't talk about the most important part of it, which is what we would call communion. And so let me remind you by this chart that we looked at this last week of the events based on order you know, as you look at all four of these Testament writers, so again, so it's not confusing, to the left, at the very top, it tells you the event of what's taking place here, and then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the very top in yellow, tell us exactly what they're writing concerning this event, and this is a chart that illustrates it in the actual order in which it actually happened. And so if you go through, you know, the list, believe it or not, we went all the way down to when Judas is identified, and then I'm going to tell you then Judas leaves to now go and betray Jesus. So we're going to spend God be glorified all the way down to the rest of their time together so you can kind of see where we're going. So with that being said, let me start with this. Uh, we all make commitments. We all make promises. 
we all make agreements, you know, in our lives, whether it's a job, you take a job, you're agreeing to do a job and you're agreeing to be paid for that job. It's going to school is another commitment, agreement, or promise. Uh, in friendships or even dating relationships, right, you have to have the define the relationship talk to be like we moved from friends to now we're dating, to maybe dating exclusively. Then there's another talk to now we're seriously dating or engaged, and, and then another talk that gets you to the point of marriage. And at each level, there is a different promise and there's a different level of commitment that you go through with that promise. We make agreements when it thing, comes to things that we buy. Uh, think about your home or your car and all the, all the paperwork that you sign because you're making an agreement, you're making a commitment when you actually you know, get those services or those, those things in your lives. Uh, you think of other kinds of services like TV or electricity, water, trash. Now, one of the most unpopular that we have in our culture that is a high level of relational commitment, one of the highest that you can have is of marriage. Now, in the course of a marriage ceremony, there is something called vows. These vows are promises, they are commitments that you are saying to the other person. Now, I have done over a hundred of these, no exaggeration, you know, in the course of my ministry experience. And uh, there's always uh, two options when it comes to vows. One is you do the traditional. Traditional, do you love, honor, and cherish for good, you know, for sickness and health and all that other kind of stuff, and you go back and forth. But more often than not, uh, a couple may choose those, but they also choose personal vows. And, and so uh, whether it's ones that I have done or that I have read about, let me just give you four that I thought were a little different, a little interesting when it came to actual vows, you know, that people had. So here is one. I promise to try my best to never go to bed angry with you, even though sometimes I'll want to kill you in your sleep. That's <laughs> like, that's... That's real. You know, that's all the married people said, amen, you know, when it came to something like that. Uh, so, somebody else, I was like, this one was interesting. Uh, I promise to support your bad habits as long as they don't involve illegal activity or endanger my safety. And I was like, why? Why would you even support their bad habits? I don't know. You know, just something like there's something going on in that relationship. Uh, here's another one uh, that I thought was, was just interesting. I promise to never take you for granted, even though sometimes I might. I love those kind of vows. There's a way out. You know, I promise to never, but I might. And so when you do it, you say, hey, I told you in our vows, I might do this. But you said you would never. Yeah, but I also said I might. So interesting, you know, a way to have that in a relationship. Uh, this one probably applies to me the most. Uh, from my wife, you know, not really, but this applies. I promise to love you even when you leave your clothes on the floor, snore like a freight train, forget to put the toilet seat down, hog the blankets in bed, or eat the last cookie or dove bar. I was like, wow, that's really specific, you know, when it comes to vows that people make. And so there's, there's these vows. Now, another word that we use uh, for marriage vows or the marriage ceremony is uh, an unusual word that we don't find in our culture, but it's found a lot in the Bible, and it's the word covenant. It's the word covenant. It's one of the only examples, you know, that we have in our culture where that phrase is even used. And yet in the Bible, it's used on a regular basis. Uh, in fact, it means in the Bible, a sacred agreement between God and his people. But a covenant is a relationship between two parties uh, who are making binding promises to each other and work together to reach a common goal. They're often accompanied by oaths, signs, and ceremonies. Covenants define obligations and commitments, but they're different from the contract because they're relational and they're personal. That's what makes it a covenant, and it, and it continues to grow based on the covenant that we have with God. Now, 
The, like I mentioned before, uh, the only remaining example of our culture is a marriage covenant. Well, actually, there is one bigger than a marriage covenant in our culture, and it's called a timeshare. And once you get involved in that, there is no getting out. It is till death do you part. And there's no way of getting out of that no matter what. Okay, so uh, God has established, uh, you, you, argue, you can argue there are seven that are in the Bible, but we're going to focus on five of the main covenants that God has with people. And, and again, I don't have any opportunity to go into any length in these things, but let me just give you just a high level um, so you can understand this. First is the Noahic covenant. This is found in Genesis chapter 9. You know, it's God, his covenant with Noah. After the flood, you know, that takes place, God's promises, here's the covenant, that he would never destroy the earth with the flood. And as a sign of that commitment, he gives a rainbow. It's the sign and seal of that commitment that he's saying, look, here's my promise, here's my covenant between you and for people from all time, and the rainbow is that reminder that he's never going to do that again. Okay, a second covenant is called the Abrahamic covenant, and that's found in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 15 as well. Uh, God promised to make Abraham into a great nation. That's where the nation of Israel comes from. I'm going to, you know, use you. I'm going to bless you. So many descendants, and I'm going to bless the world through you. And he makes this covenant, this commitment, you know, uh, with Abraham. Now, the sign of that commitment would be something called circumcision. Now, I'm not going to show you a picture of that. Um, that's, uh, that's something you can research on your own. Kids, you can ask your parents later you know, about what that means. The third one is the Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic Covenant is found in Exodus 19 and also in Exodus 24. He promised to make Israel you know, the holy nation if they followed the law. So that's why the Ten Commandments are so popular, you know, as we look at the Old Testament, because it was so critical as an example of this covenant, and the people of Israel had this agreement, it's signed and sealed with, with blood, you know, that we see that takes place, that's, that seals it as well, but the sign, some people would say, is the law itself, or some people actually look at it and say the sign is the Sabbath. You know, that God actually took a day of rest, and he's calling us to take a day of rest. There's a lot of understanding from that as well that we don't need to get into right now. Then the next one, the fourth one, is the Davidic covenant. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promised to establish an eternal kingdom through David's line. So David, through his kingdom, is going to have Jesus, and that throne is never going to end. And so the sign is the promise of an eternal throne. You know, that's the actual sign. So that is the four covenants. And again, there's some minor ones that you see also in the Old Testament. But what we see is in the Old Testament is a promise of a new and final covenant. That there's going to be one more covenant between God and his people that will be on this side and last through all eternity. And then we see that in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, where it says, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife. Notice the personal and intentional wording that God uses in, the, in terms of a husband-wife relationship is very similar to the covenantal relationships God has with his people. And yet time and time again, God's people never achieve or fulfill their side of the covenant, this agreement. God always does, but his people fall short time and time again. But in the new covenant, I will make with my people of Israel after those days, I will put my instructions deep within them and I'll write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, if you want to do a deeper dive, 
on the difference between the Old Testament, Old Covenant, and the New Covenant, the book of Hebrews is probably one of the best that illustrates the difference between the two. And it just so happens that in our morning devotionals, we are doing Hebrews. Now, let me just tell you, I'm not that smart. This only God kind of put this together, that we'd be talking about this this weekend, and then tomorrow morning we're going to be in Hebrews, and I believe it's chapter 9, as we start really examining, because it's in chapters 8 through like 11, 12, that really illustrate this covenant, and he talks about the old and the new. And so there's another plug for you, you know, as well. Oh, by the way, another word for covenant is testament, which is why in our Bibles you have the Old Testament the Old Covenant, and the New Testament, which is the New Covenant. It's the same word. So there is a difference between the Old and the New. Okay, so let's start looking at this again. So behind me is this Passover meal, and some of you have experienced this in modern day times, and uh, they call it a Seder meal. You know, and they illustrate what the different things represent to the Jewish people, but also can represent according to Jesus. Now, I don't have time to walk through this. I can just tell you that every part of the Passover meal has symbolic meaning to those who are Jewish and also those who are Christian. Like, for example, just two examples, the bitter herbs that you would partake in were called the bitterness of slavery. Or you'd also partake in salt water to remember the tears that were shed by the Jewish people under Egypt's oppression. So I don't have time to go through all of this, but here's what I do want to focus on, which was new to me and I hope will be encouraging to you. Is What I do want to tell you is that there are four cups that take place at every Passover service. Every Passover service, they would celebrate four cups. Now, they would always do four cups, two cups of wine before they would eat the meal, and they would do two cups of wine after they eat the meal. So this is what Jesus is doing with his disciples on the night that he is betrayed. He is celebrating a Passover meal with them. Now, in Exodus chapter 6, it's a correlation because as they go through this meal, they're going to quote God's word from Exodus 6 because it correlates with each individual cup. So in Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7, it says, Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. So what they would do is they would divide that section of scripture up and either before or after they drink of one of the cups, they would repeat one of those phrases from the book of Exodus. Each cup has specific meaning. Like for example, they would start with the cup of sanctification. And what they would do is they would say this phrase, like I said, either before or after they drink this cup of wine, I will free you from your oppression. So there's a sanctification process. I'm going to free you from your oppression that would partake of this cup. The second would be the cup of deliverance. And then they would say this phrase, I will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. So they're remembering during the Passover meal what God has done, that he is the great deliverer, and he's the great one that they can celebrate during that. And then they would partake of the meal, and then they'd go into the third cup. Now, here's what we know before I get to the third cup, is that Jesus is actually doing all the four cups with his disciples. How do we know? If you go to Luke chapter 22, verse 17, it says this, then Jesus took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among you. 
Then a couple of verses later, it says, and after supper, he takes another cup. Okay, so what cup is he taking? We don't actually know. We do know it's one of these first two cups because it's before the supper. So many theologians, people who study this, said, well, obviously it's either the cup of the deliverance, and they make a case for that, or the cup of sanctification. So this is the cup that he's partaking with with his disciples, one of those first two in Luke chapter 22, verse 17. Then after the meal, he takes what's called the cup of redemption. To redeem means to buy back. Okay, I want you to hold on to that. To redeem means to buy back. And then they would say this phrase, I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. Again, quoting Exodus chapter 6. We'll come back to this in just a second. The last cup would be the cup of restoration. And it's a celebratory time. And it's a reminder as they say, I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. So they always finish with, yes, he is our God and we are his chosen people. And they would have this moment and this time a celebration. Here's what's interesting. Jesus chooses not to mention or participate in this last cup of restoration. He doesn't do that. But what he does say is that I'm going to drink anew with you again when I come into my father's kingdom. What he's telling them, his disciples, and he's telling us is there's going to be a restoration of all things When God is going to bring all things back, all things together at the end of time, and we are going to celebrate with him drinking this cup that it has been made new. Now, how do we know this? Because Revelation actually tells us in 21 verse 3, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now with his people. Doesn't that sound a little familiar to Exodus chapter 6? And he will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He goes, I will be your God and you will be my people. And what a celebration of restoration. Okay, so let's go back to this cup, the cup of redemption. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus is going through these cups and he changes the words in which this cup now represents. The cup of redemption is no longer going to be the cup of bringing you and redeeming you and buying you out of Egypt, it's going to be something greater. For in Mark chapter 14 and verse 23, it says, And he took a cup of wine, and he gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And then he said, This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. Now, they have no idea why Jesus just changed everything. Everything was going along per normal, and they're not going to understand at this point, but they're going to understand later. Now, just like Old Testament, there are going to be signs that are going to be a reminder. The seal is what Jesus does on the cross when he actually sacrifices his life, saying, this is the blood of my covenant, but this is what that represents So that every time you take this, you remember the seal of what's taken place on the cross. And so communion is a reminder, it is a sign for what God has done and a reminder for us. The second sign that we see this is something called baptism. Like what circumcision was to Abraham in the Old Testament, baptism is to followers of Jesus in the New Testament. It's a sign and the seal of what God is doing in our lives, which is why we encourage all to partake and be able to do that. 
So what does, though, um, this, and we've learned about the wine a little bit, what does the bread, you know, represent? Now, I took a look at uh, our, our, our video beforehand, and I looked at that bread going, oh, that is such good bread. How many bread lovers? Guys, I know there's so many carbs. Yes, there's some amazing bread. It's not anything like what you just saw, okay? So it's matzah bread, and if it's cooked really well, it can be good, but if it's not, it's pretty bland. It's completely flat. There is no yeast, and there's no uh, uh, leaven, you know, uh, in it whatsoever. It looks more like a hockey puck, you know, than anything else. And typically, it's not even the most tasty thing. And so they would take this bread during the Passover meal. They would take this because this bread in the Bible is an illustration of two things. First, they took this bread because it represents freedom. And God said, you got to cook it this way because there's no time for yeast. And leaven represented sin. So they said, hey, there is no sin in this bread. And you got to do it in haste because I'm going to get you out of Egypt quickly. This bread, as you see oftentimes in the Bible, represents freedom. So what Jesus is saying is just like this bread has no sin and gives you freedom, the bread that I am giving you is my body that represents my body given for you that represents freedom because I am sinless as well. So that's why he's taking the bread and that's why he's taking this cup of redemption and making this point there. So... What we're going to do is we're going to partake of this together in just a minute. So go ahead and grab your elements. They should have been on your seats. You know, if you're in the front row, if you're in the other row, there's an opportunity to do that. And if you're not a Christian, I'm going to kind of lead you, you know, in this, you know, as well. Now, before we get into this, there's an important side note uh, because there is a concern um, that we do this seriously and contemplatively. And I grew up with this and maybe, maybe you did as well. And the reason that we have this idea that when we take communion, it needs to be this solemn, somber, introspective act is because we base it on a passage in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Corinth during under Roman Empire and Roman rule. In verse 27, it says this, So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So I'm like, I don't want to sin against the body and blood of the Lord, so I need to take this really seriously. Oh, it gets better. For if you eat the bread, uh, I'm sorry, that is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some of you have even died. And I'm like, I don't want to die. You know, and I'm being told, as I, as I, even as a kid, as I come to faith, going, I've got to take this so seriously. i got to examine myself because I don't want to get sick, and I want to make sure that this is a solemn time. We've turned that into that. The problem is, is that almost every time that you see it exemplified in the Bible and the early church, it was during a meal. It was festive. It was celebratory. Obviously, there was some serious to it, but we've taken it serious because of this passage. Now, here's one of the things that we need to understand. When we look at a passage like this, we have to understand context. What is going on in this church in Corinth that would, Paul would call out the importance of doing it this way, even telling them why some of them are sick and even dying? Did you know the Bible actually speaks for itself? But we don't talk about those verses 
only a few verses, I'm not talking about a different chapter or a different place in the Bible, a few verses earlier, Paul has a confrontation conversation. In verse 20, this is what's taking place in this church. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing it with others. As a result, some go hungry, get this, while others get drunk. Okay, so they're having a meal together, and they're like, ooh, I'm starving. Have you ever gotten your, on your kids for eating before you pray? I know some of you have. You're like, we need to pray first. They're like, but I'm hungry. And they just start wolfing down the food. You know, in our house, we could only afford, you know, like a, like a Little Caesars pizza, you know, for dinner. And the rule was, the more you ate, the faster you ate, the more you got. Okay, they never kind of divided it up. So there was almost, and I have there was three brothers. So you're like, uh, all right, ready, go. And so that was part of the, all right, go and see how much you could get in. So I can just imagine this is taking place. They're hungry, they come in, and they're eating, and then they're drinking, all right, but they're getting drunk on the wine that's supposed to represent Jesus. I love Jesus, I love Jesus. You know, just like, you're like, what is wrong with you people? It's completely defiling, it is completely shameful, and it is being called out by Paul for all eternity. So he continues to go on. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? The reason he mentions that, it was those who had resources that ate first. And so not only would the poor not partake in communion, they wouldn't even be part of the meal. Because again, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, to which communion is part of that meal, not the only thing. Or, uh, and then what am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. So these people are completely dishonoring this. We take the second passage that talks about how we should partake in this, and then we do this in such a solemn way, which there's nothing wrong. We should always have an opportunity to make sure that we are elevating the importance of what we're doing. But let's not get carried away so that we understand the reason which Paul wrote that. And hopefully that can be helpful for you, because I know it's been helpful for me based on even my own church background. So we're going to eat this and partake of this together. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I would just encourage you to observe, to watch what's going on and consider that this might be something that one day you'd be willing to participate in as you enter into this new covenant. For this bread, Jesus says, this is my body. This is the symbol of freedom that is given for you. And we'll use the words from 1 Corinthians, you know, knowing that this bread didn't taste good, so I don't want to hear complaints about our styrofoam bread, okay? So I understand what we're going through as well. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, gave thanks to God for it, then he broke it to pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of this now. And then, in verse 23 and 24, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, gave thanks to God for it. Oh, so this is my body, I'm sorry. In the same way, he took the cup of wine, notice when, after supper, showing again the two cups and the two cups, saying this cup is the new 
covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Let's go ahead and partake of this now. Father, we just thank you so much that this is a reminder of this covenant, of this sacrifice that what you have done. And Father, we just are just so grateful. We're so thankful. We are moved and in awe that this is what you would choose to do. And we are recipients of that. We love you and thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, some people have asked, you know, hey, Dan, why do we do this every week? Some churches have done it once a month, once every few months, once a year. The reason we choose to do this every week is because no matter what we talk about, we always are, are focused in on the covenantal commitment we have with God. So that every time you take this, it can be a reminder, just like what we do sometimes with marriage. Once a year, you celebrate an anniversary. And so we see that online. This is one year, five years, 10 years, and we celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. What we're doing is we are celebrating every week. We are being reminded of just like a marriage commitment and then some, we are in a covenantal relationship with God. And so what a reminder, what a gratefulness, what an opportunity to say, hey God, you know what? I messed up you know, this week in my, co- my part of the covenant. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercies. Now, before we end our time today, there is one more scene that I want to show you because it does tie in. And this is probably the part that hit me the most when I was in Israel. So they get up from this meal, they sing a song, and they head to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus reveals something critical, and we don't often tie these two scenes together, but they're clearly tied. Because what happens in the garden is, let me just start with this, Gethsemane is actually called, another nickname for Gethsemane literally means oil press. So they're taking crushed olives, and there's a press that can be found, and they see the press that takes place and the pressure that has to take to the olives to get as much olive oil out of those olives as possible. It is not by accident that Jesus goes there at one of those greatest points of stress in his life, his greatest points of pressure in his life. And he goes not once, but three times over a few hours, asking his disciples to pray along with him. They fall asleep. He prays again. They fall asleep. He prays again three different times. He goes away and he prays on his knees before God. Now, don't miss this. As we look in the garden, he says this prayer in Matthew 26, and it's in the other chapters as well. My father, if it is possible... Let this cup be taken away, so cup of suffering be taken away from me, yet I want your will to be done and not mine. Then Jesus left them a second time and he prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, yet again, your will be done. So what do we see in these passages is that Jesus is introducing to us a fifth cup. He didn't have to say the word cup. God doesn't do anything by accident. He could have just said, just take this suffering from me, yet not my will. But he says, cup 
of suffering. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus even mentions this. Uh, James and John, well, actually, let me be more specific. James and John's mommy goes to Jesus and asks that, uh, that, that he put you know, uh, her sons on his right and left when they come into God's kingdom. Like, I want them to be great. And what does Jesus say in response to this? But Jesus answered them by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I am about to drink? See, this fifth cup of suffering is because of the righteous judgment and the righteous wrath of God. You see, in Jeremiah chapter 25, we read about this cup. It says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all nations to whom I send you drink it. This cup is the righteous judgment is reserved for Jesus alone that takes it upon ourselves. Sometimes when we look at the Bible, we say, why does God seem like the God of judgment and wrath in the Old Testament and somebody that is so grace and love filled in the New Testament. Has God changed? No. It's because Jesus drank the cup of suffering, drank the cup of judgment, drank the cup of wrath that would rightly go upon us for the final time in Jesus. So let's fast forward. When Jesus is on the cross and he is about ready to be done, he cries out, it is finished. What is he finished doing? Drinking the last drop of suffering from this cup that rightfully should be yours and mine, and yet he takes it for all eternity. Come on. That's worth celebrating. So it appears, like, why is this God different? He's not. The difference is Jesus. And because of who Jesus is and what he's done, you and I every week get to gather and we get to celebrate what he has taken on for us. We deserve wrath because the standard is perfection. We deserve judgment. And Jesus says, nope, I'm going to take it for you. Your job is to choose to decide if you want to be in covenant with me. And by being in covenant with God, we get to avoid the wrath and the judgment of God because of the grace of Jesus Christ that has been exhibited on that cross. And so as we close, we can clap about that. You can get excited about that. What will you choose to do concerning this covenant that has been offered to you through Jesus Christ? It really literally is, and I've probably not a good, done a good job with this over the years, it's a marriage proposal. Jesus is saying, let's get married. Let's have that kind of commitment and then some. And even when you make the mistakes, I'm going to be ready to forgive. I'm going to be ready to heal. I'm going to be ready to grow you. I'm going to be ready to challenge you. I'm going to walk this journey with you. That's why we see this illustration of the bride and bridegroom all the way through the New Testament so much more than we see it in the Old Testament. And so what will you do with that? For some of you, this is that point of decision to say, yep, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to do this. For others of you, you're going to make a choice to be baptized, and maybe not even today, but you're going to process through that maybe on Easter weekend, that that would be your day, your time, and your opportunity because of what does the resurrection represent? It represents what we see in baptism. It's the communion and it's the resurrection all together. And what a better weekend to be able to do it then.
What is God leading you to do? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for you and this example and this cup, this cup of suffering that you took. Father, I pray that you would lead, guide, and direct our steps. Father, for some in this room, it's a first-time commitment to say, yes, I choose, choose to be in covenant with you, Jesus. And if that's you, I pray that you'll pray this simple prayer. Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my life. Father, for the rest of us, I pray that this would just be a renewal, that every time we take this bread and we drink this cup, we remember what you have done and that it binds us and reminds us of the commitment we have in you, the covenant that we have with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.